You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back. Land Lakes Podcast. We're going to jump right into it this week. Um, It's been a little bit uh, since we've heard from Mr. Kyle Hedges, uh, one of our consultants on staff here. So, Kyle, thanks for coming on. Yep, yep, it has been a little while. Yeah, it's been a little while, but we've been uh, all doing our best to chase deer and and kiddos and all kinds of stuff, so appreciate you coming on. Yep, and that's what we're here to talk about, chasing yeah. some deer and, and enjoying some time on family farms. That's right, that's right. Um, we're going to, you know, as we get into this, we want to talk about, for you guys, you've heard... You've heard us talk uh, in the past about some of the stuff that Kyle's been doing on this farm, um, a little a little bit of different stuff, but we've never actually fine-tuned and really got into the meat and taters, if you will, of a lot of the work that he's doing and a lot of the success that they're having on this place. So uh, it's going to be exciting for me to hear about it because I hear it through conversation, but um, to really unpack uh, everything that they're doing and the observations they've made um, over, over the last few years and, uh, just to hear all that. So it's going to be a fun, fun podcast right here as we, uh, kind of just catch up with Kyle, uh, on your hunting season so far. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah. it's a neat farm and it's really, um, got a lot of unique characteristics, I guess. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm just, as I look at the Onyx, uh, Onyx aerial of it, I'm just like, Woof, you've got a lot different challenges than I do on my farm, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, got two different creeks that bisect it, go through it, uh, which actually makes it neat. Got some interesting, appro- you know, use a kayak to approach some stands and be kind of stealthy and not be leaving scent everywhere, which makes it kind of interesting. And at yeah. the same time, it challenges you sometimes for management, right? You can't get across the creek certain times, can't <clears throat> put in burn lines maybe when you want i've got to take advantage of you know low creek situations to do a bunch of work sometimes when i can so yeah oh man yeah i can understand that you know uh the farm whistling woodlands that chad and i purchased it's got a creek that runs through it 
that is a seasonal creek. You know, we might have water in it during the spring and summer, but then it dries up usually in the fall. And I don't think it was always like that, but um, there are times in the spring when it's planting food plots, like uh, our soybeans and different things, that it's like, we can't plant those fields. we got to wait for it to get lower. Uh, and there's been some times where we've tried it and been like, uh-oh, we've, <laughs> we've got the no-till drill and the tractor stuck in the creek. And we had to get a big old long tow rope and yank it out. And that was, that's fun. Yep. Yeah. Makes it exciting. Yeah. Before we jump in, I want to thank one of our partners that helped us make this podcast possible, Vortex Optics. Um, As we're rolling through, I know uh, gun season's wrapped up, but uh, here in Missouri, it doesn't seem like firearm season ever ends anymore because we go from... uh, firearm season to youth season to antlerless season and then i know we'll be spilling right into muzzleloader season um here in the latter part of this month so always prime time to be carrying optics and scoped rifles or muzzleloaders and uh, matt and i picked up uh, some uh, range finders recently new ones uh, and uh man we're just plugging away so if you're interested in optics as well as apparel Use promo code LEGACY20 at VortexOptics.com for 20% off of all apparel. All right, Kyle. So let's kind of give me an overview of what you've got going on um, with with this farm in Kansas uh, as we talk about some of your work and then, most importantly, tie that all together with hunting. I've got some killer questions for you. Not just, I guess, not killer, but... Ultimately, some of the biggest challenges that I bet you face with this farm when I look at it uh, up close on aerial image. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, just, I mean, the the basic layout, it, it's only 160 acres, so not a huge piece of property, right? Um, I'm lucky with kind of the way one of my neighbors is high-grades deer pretty well, so he's from Iowa, so he's used to big deer, so uh, um, bow hunts mainly, but anyway, uh, on my property, several open fields that are mostly CRP. So, um, warm season natives, grasses and forbs mm-hmm. and, and then, uh, <clears throat> uh, several, I don't know, I guess it'd probably add up to actually a couple miles worth of riparian, the way the Creek flows through it. And some of that is, is high enough, steep enough banks that it's, you know, oak hickory riparian zone. Then other is, is bottom, more lower bottom stuff that's um, maple, ash, sycamore. Elm. Uh, yep, got some elm. And hackberry. Hackberry, yep. yep. And and then I've got one main chunk of timber, oak hickory timber that's, I don't know, probably 30 acres or so. Actually a couple pieces, I guess, split by the, the driveway, but that's that's you know a dry mesic upland uh, woodland mm-hmm. so it i guess i would say you know with all the crp bedding cover is not an issue for me i've got the bedding cover of of everywhere we still run chainsaws still you know do work in the timber don't get me wrong but yeah i always have somewhere i mean you'll be sitting in a stand and all of a sudden just heads appear because it's in a crp field well it's because they just stood up yeah. They didn't just sneak out there. They just got up and you're like, Oh, there's a deer. <laughs> huh. 
Yeah, 160 acres. And when I look at the aerial, it seems like the biggest thing that catches your eye is creek, so riparian area, and those CRP. How many acres are grass, CRP, something of that nature? Yeah, so in the, I guess all total, there's well over half of it is in CRP. So it's, you know, pushing probably 100 acres is, well, not all CRP, but in grass. Uh, some of that is that wasn't in CRP, didn't qualify. I just this last year put into a pollinator mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just kind of, you know, crappy, poor fescue, Johnson grassy, just doing nothing. Yep. And I finally got around to putting it in a pollinator mix. Um, but yeah, probably 100 acres of, of, of grass overall. Kind of grass and that yep. that that kind of uh, um, taller mid-range, I guess, just mix of grass and forbs. Yep. 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 And I've got some food plots on the place. How many course. acres in food plots? Uh, not much. Maybe two acres total. So not much. Devoted Not to food plots. Much. And you don't live on this property. So Correct. for our listeners that trying to relate here, 160 acres, two acres being food plots, not living on the place, trying to maximize time in food plots and maximize the production for wildlife, that's kind of the name of the game for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's show up, plant my stratton bit no-till stratton beans into my food plots, you know, and um, yep. when I'm over there, hopefully in turkey season, if that doesn't work out, I go back and I do it later, and then I go back around Labor Day and plant Legacy Blend right back into the, the stratton beans, so yeah, pretty simple. I'm not getting too fancy, I no-till it all in there, um, and just roll on, so um, I've got a nearby no-till drill I can get my hands on, so that's pretty handy. But, yeah, the food plots have their place, and, of course, we I hunt over some of those certain times, um, and obviously they're serving other purposes. I'm also managing turkeys on this farm, not just deer. Yep. Um, so it's some um, – when you got all that CRP, um, <clears throat> that's one sh- shortfall for turkey hunting is I got a lot of tall grass, so – Yep. You know, I've got to do other things, so food plots and or burning. I've got to have some shorter areas to get birds to strut. But. How is the turkey hunting on years you aren't able to burn? If I'm not able to burn, it's pretty tight. Um, lots of times there, I've got one neighbor that's got some short fescue and another neighbor that's got some clover plots. So typically I've got some birds that are strutting right on the neighbors. Now, I have, of course, all the nesting cover. Yeah. So I'm getting, I'm getting hens coming and going, but I've got to have something. I have to have food plots. Well, I always have something burned, Yeah. but I, I have to make an effort. And there's been a, I remember 10 years ago, there was a year that I didn't have anything burned and I, I couldn't burn. I don't remember what the deal was, but if it was just too wet or what, but I went and brush hogged, you know, 10 acres <laughs> just <laughs> so I would have somewhere turkeys could strut. So, yeah. Um, this managing against your normal thought process sometimes to have a place for a turkey to strut, but it worked. Yeah. Oh man. One other thing that really sticks out to me when I look at this place is the lack of cedars compared to the neighborhood. Oh yeah. Yeah. Have you been burning well, that, them up, that, cutting that's them up? By, 
both by design both yeah i hate cedars and always have and and when you look at the neighborhood yeah there's cedars all over so i don't need to supply that i'm not gonna lie i've only got 160 acres right so i'm not these deer aren't living on me permanently yeah i mean i'm trying to maximize the time they stay on me we talk about this all the time at land and legacy yep uh but we know that deer are coming and going some well when a couple of my neighbors are covered up with cedars yeah there's clearly no purpose for me to have that habitat type when it's yeah it's for the most part as you know i know you hate them and it's just taking up space but even when they are using some of that i there's no need for me to supply it when it's literally 30 yards across the fence yeah yep and you know once again what good for as far as thermal cover you know, yeah. um, in your part of the world, deep snows, heavy snows really aren't that common. No. And they can get a ice storm, maybe. Yeah. You know, and they can once get every few years. They can get some pretty good wind block and yeah. still catch sun out there in that grass. So, yeah. Yeah. I've got the, I've got all the bedding cover they can lay out there in the sun on them. All, all they want. The, you know, the CRP. when I look at your place, I see. At least three ponds, correct? Yep, correct. There's a wetland and then two ponds. Okay. Yep. Wetland and two ponds. And then I see the creek. So water is not an issue for you whatsoever. Correct. And then you've got really good grass. What's the other 58 acres made up of? Riparian and... Riparian and a couple chunks of, you know, higher elevation, um, upland timber, upland woodland, mesic woodland. So pretty dry, you know, I'll have in that, in that, those timber chunks that you're seeing there, um, you know, a, a 12 inch tree will be 50, 60 years old. It's pretty poor soil. Don't grow very well. It's a woodland. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll die. They won't, most of those trees won't even make it past 14, 15 inches. They just die. Yep. Um, so and gotcha. burn the timber just the same as a burn the grass. Um, yeah. Everything there at a, at a minimum is on a three year burn rotation. There's a couple of fields that I'm kind of fighting some, oh, black cherry sprouts and some different stuff that's on a 50% burn row every other year burn rotation right now. But Gotcha. So I'm imagining that everything burns except for those lowland, wet, riparian areas that the only reason they don't burn is because you can't get them to burn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't try to keep fire out of them. I mean, that just peters out there. Yeah. And there, of course, you know, river oats and stuff is what you're going to find down in that kind of stuff. So sometimes you'll get fire will finger through some of that on the right day. Yeah. Awesome. What other kind of management techniques have you utilized over the years? A little bit of everything. Um, you know, in the past, I've, I've done some strip disking over there. Of course, I do invasive species management. Um, strip disking in that CRP is not really an option. I learned my lesson a long time ago. Johnson grass is, is king over there. And strip disking just releases Johnson grass. So. <laughs> yeah. Um fire i mean fire and and then of course in the timber i'm running a chainsaw uh, opening stuff up cutting and bedding thickets the the same stuff that we preach to 
to clients, you know. What do you think we're, we're doing it. over the years? You know, you guys have had this for a long time. Over the years, when it comes to it as being a deer manager, thinking like a deer hunter, what are some of the things you've done that you're like, that's the best thing I've done for for improving my hunting success? Um, Or at least, let me reword this, or at least changing it where you felt like you got more pictures of the deer so you had a better chance at harvesting them. Oh, the predictability? Yeah. yeah. The running a chainsaw, for sure. Yeah. Yep. 100%. I mean, it adds to the predictability of where they're going to bed. And it doesn't even take much. And we've you've discussed this dozens of times. But, you know, it doesn't have to be these two-acre giant cuts. I put one in, oh, I guess so. maybe last turkey season, just this last year, I put a little one in. Um, deer, a place where deer used to bed, um, back in the late nineties, early two thousands. And it was one of those, you know, I don't see deer bedding any there. And I, I just really hadn't messed around in this little spot. And I bet I didn't cut a 10th of an acre and you go in there and there's beds now. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I watched a buck chase a doe. She snuck in there trying to get away from a little buck. One day when I was hunting over there, I shot a doe. Guess where it ran? Straight in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, went to the thickest cover. I mean, it's just something that little makes a difference even. No doubt. No years. doubt. What was the uh, side index like with with that cut? Was it, what what kind of slope? No, uh, it it's flat. Okay. Uh, most of that farm is pretty flat. I mean, I just got some steep banks. And there's yeah. elevation change, but there's almost no, I mean, when it happens, it happens within 50 feet. There's a little drop off and then you're back to perfectly flat. Yeah. I'm looking at, at the topo and I mean, the only, yeah, maybe 150 feet elevation change. If that, maybe, maybe. And that'd be from clear down in the Creek bed. Yeah. 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 So relatively flat. I noticed those topo lines are pretty spread out. Yeah. So I was, you know, I think that especially um, when you're cutting in so many times for guys and they cut in and it's like, let's say, north slope or east slope, and they cut in just a very small thing, and they're like, well, it basically grew back in brambles or briars. The guy yeah, doesn't catch full sun, but if you can get one that even even if it catches a lot of sun and it's small, it's still going to yeah. have a great response. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what's interesting, Kyle, when, when you tell me that – we talked early in the podcast about how much grass you have, but yet you talk about cutting in the bedding thickets and how you find the beds in those. Oh, yeah. And now you go, I'll find a pile of beds in the grass, too. Yeah. But but when you watch, I mean, I've got a different topic here, but I have 12 stands on this 160 acres. Yeah. I, I don't like to sit in the same stand very often. But yeah. So I, I have a lot of different observations over there. And when you got a buck chasing a doe, they'll run through the CRP, but she doesn't try to lose him in the CRP. Yeah. She tries to go somewhere thicker, nastier to lose the, you know, the, the silly little basket eight that's chasing her. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, that almost always seems to happen in one of the riparian zones or somewhere in the timber that she's trying to duck into somewhere to get rid of him. To me, that sounds exactly like when we talk about the difference in comfort cover. Like when we're when we're telling a landowner, hey, you know, you need to do these, you know, a one acre 
bedding thicket here, but then the 15 acres around it, I want you to TSI that. And then mm-hmm. they say, well, what well, what happens? Aren't they going to start bedding out here in the 15 acres? Like, what happened to defining the bedding? It's like, yes, that means they're going to bed out there some, but during the fall, during the time of the year when you're wanting to hunt, that's the, that bedding thicket is still the focal point. It's still yeah. the, the area that you can define as as the beacon in that 15 acres or whatever, that 17 acres, because if they're in that area, they're probably going by that cut. And, yep, and I think right. it sounds like exactly like what you're observing in, in Kansas is, as far as even though you've got grass everywhere, you're still cutting in the woods yep. and seeing pretty drastic, um, pretty drastic movement around those cuts. How many cuts do you think you've got on the place now? Oh, I've only got two real serious cuts. Yeah. Um, they're thin and kind of scattered everywhere. But... Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, and you said you burned those too. Oh, yeah. And and fire, absolutely. Of course, if anybody's listening to this very long, I mean, that's my, I'm a pyro, and that's my number one management tool. But And you're in a part of the world where fire was a huge part of the natural disturbance. Yep. And, so. and if you know anything about typical Kansas CRP, you know, it's grass dominated. Without uh-huh. fire, I just don't have the plants that I need for the turkeys or the deer. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I don't want, with that many acres of in CRP type grasses, I can't afford for that just to be some bedding cover. Yeah. That that's not acceptable. That's gotta be some food. So I've got to try to favor, you know, enough burning to increase my forb component and get some browsing out there. Yeah. So do you do do. more dormant season fires? I'm assuming, but how often do you use grow growing season fires? Um, uh, not very often. Almost all of my stuff has been, and it's just the nature of my job over here in Missouri. Yeah. Um, so most of my, my fire is in the spring over there in March or April. I'm not, and I do a lot of growing season burns over here in Missouri. It's just tougher for me to get over there and, and do that then. But to be honest with you, um, I'm not sure I would employ a lot of that because for hunting purposes, I would compromise a little bit. Yeah. Um, that I've seen times that my dad may or may not have got carried away on a brush hog some years. Um, and he'll be out there mowing CRP cause he sees three sprigs of Johnson grass in it mm-hmm. and mow, you know, 20 acres of CRP in late summer or fall. And it completely changes my deer movements ah. in my hunting season. Um, they're, yep. they just don't feel as comfortable, right? There's yep. not this, the way it is when, if I've got standing cover in all those fields in November, I've got deer cutting right through the middle of any of them. They'll go anywhere through them. Hmm. And that actually works to my advantage rather than being random because it's yeah. almost, they'll just abandon those fields if they get opened up too much. But Here's a question just, for you. You've got a, a major switchback in your creek. And on the aerial image, it looks like it's been burned. Is that food plot, the big peninsula, or what it, What have we got going no, on? No, that's a jungle of, yeah, no, that's uh, that's a lower field, frequently flooded. Okay, um, lots that of That peninsula part, so it's it's rough. It'll just be wing stem. Oh, yeah. That's eight foot tall. Oh, it'll get deer use. Um, there's actually a couple crossings that'll 
they'll it's shallow enough that they can cross off of that peninsula and then work their way up the steep bank but across yeah uh, to the south but yep no i burned that it's on a three-year rotation too gotcha um, yeah it looks very uh splotchy like perfect yep. like where you get it burned in places and other places don't burn yep exactly. how many quail are on the place well, we'll have a covey off and on. Years ago, when the surrounding landscape was a little better, we used to have a couple coveys consistently. But just the way it lays and the neighboring use, I mean, you're talking about the cedars on around the neighbors, and it's just not a real quail-friendly landscape anymore. Yeah. I got a, I got a covey that'll kind of come and go to the northwest of me, and they're on us sometimes, and northwest, that property next door. Gotcha. All right. So as a we're gonna we're going to uh start talking a little bit about the management from a, a landowner that's not living there. And I and I think I've already put it there or laid it out so people can understand exactly. But hundred and sixty acres, basically I'm guessing you and your dad as the managers of it, but mainly you. And yeah. comes down to how do you manage hundred and sixty acres being two, three hours away, and actually even making a dent in the wildlife production. Let's hear it. Well, so, and and you can go back a few months ago. I won't go into super detail. Matt and I talked a, a, a podcast about being prepared. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's what that was about, is being a distant landowner. You know, I've got to go over there and have certain chemicals already in my hand. Yeah, And I've got to know what to anticipate that, hey, if I'm going over there, I'm going to be over there, let's say, in June to plant my food plots. What else might I need to do? I expect Johnson grass that time of year. It's going to be at the right height to spray it, you know, things like that. And and part of that comes with knowing your farm. But mm-hmm. part of it comes with knowing that part of the country and knowing the, the plants that are common and the responses. And um, so... I've got a handful of chemicals that are always with me certain times, so I'm prepared to deal with, because I can't get over there and say, oh my gosh, I've got whatever outbreak, you know? Yep. Here's a bunch of Cerisa. Yep. Well, it's a Sunday. I can't go buy the right chemical. I better have it with me if I'm going to spend all day working on two or three things. Yep. Um, equipment. I'm lucky that I can get my hands on a no-till drill, but of course there takes some arrangements. I got to coordinate and make sure that's all lined up before I get over there. Yep. Um, you got to, of course, watch the weather. I got to make it count. I got to know that I'm going to be able to drill. Maybe dry here, but they've got rain there, vice versa. Of course, my dad, I can call my dad and check on those kind of things. Yep. Um, you got to plan for failures you got to expect that the tractor might have a flat tire so you better have an air compressor you got yeah. I mean, just all that kind of stuff right um, oh man yeah that's a never-ending list but um so that that's where i'll keep going back to fire fire is such a huge tool i can do more with fire over there in a short amount of time and make a bigger impact than any other tool i have Mm-hmm. So that's watching the weather, planning ahead. That's planning ahead and installing fire lines maybe weeks, months ahead. I've installed fire lines, you know, Labor Day weekend that I intend to use in the spring in case I couldn't get back across the creek anytime soon. How was that? Was that just disking or was that disking and drilling in wheat? 
No, that's just mowed lines. Just okay. mowing sure as I can. And then with the creek, the way the creek is on my place, I can just head fire stuff and burn to the creek. And all I got to do is put out the back fire with a blower or four-wheeler with a little water unit. So yeah. gotcha. I work off of blowed lines in the timber and mowed lines in the CRP pretty easily. Very cool. Yep. So how many, you said you had two acres of food plots and is it like half and half, one acre clover, one acre annuals? No, my, my revival plot. Uh, yeah, I do have a little revival plot. Um, it's only probably a half acre. Okay. And then I've got two other little food plot or one bigger one and one smaller one there. I don't think they show up on a. I don't see a single X. food plot on, yeah. on X. So I was, I was Some wondering older, where they were. Those are older maps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then the reason I ask that is because if you had a clover base as your food plots, then that eliminates a lot of the time in the spring and the fall when a lot of people are doing other yeah. things uh, to prepare for food plots. But you're you're set up to where ultimately yeah. you run the chainsaw and now you manage the fire. And you yeah. do that for a couple of years and the chainsaw doesn't have to be out nearly as much. And you just start burning to keep everything back and keep everything yeah. uh, regenerating. And, and then you just can ultimately just enjoy the hunting side of it so with that being said for 160 acres you guys have had a lot of success over the years let's talk about that yeah um, off and on we've had my my dad bought this place in 93 so we've had it quite a while and and there were stretches that i lived a lot further away and didn't get to utilize it near as much um didn't get to manage it hardly at all there was stretches in there you know that i was five hours away and it just wasn't practical so yeah we've had our ups and downs um, but we've had some quality deer for, you know, and I guess it steeps their own. If it, maybe if Greg, Greg Glessinger was on here, he wouldn't necessarily be excited about a <laughs> 150, but most people in the United States are probably going to say, you know, Hey, any 150 plus is pretty quality deer. And I, I would agree, but, yeah. um, so yeah, we've had our ups and downs, um, but things have really started looking up here lately. We we went through a bad EHD outbreak in 2012, and that hurt us, set us way back for several years. You lose those age classes. It takes a while, you know. Yep. Um, but I've, I guess I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy on a, most years I'll have at least a couple 140 pluses on camera that are, that are living on me, not just you know, we're there one day out of the year, mm-hmm. like consistently on me, you know, in the fall. Yep. Um, usually most years I've got a 150 plus on me. Um, so wow. it, it makes a difference. It doesn't take a lot of acres to, to grow some quality deer. Yeah. And it's one thing to have them. Now let's talk about killing them. What's been the strategy there? <laughs> yeah. Well, quit taking your buddies to your farm. That's my first piece of advice. <laughs> no, so i've got a, a wildlife biologist buddy of mine and he helps me burn he doesn't there's no questions asked i say hey we got to go burn on thursday you know and okay and he goes with me so yeah he'll go run a chainsaw this is part of the deal but but he comes over and we turkey hunted every spring and and we bow hunted every fall and We've enjoyed some several years over there together. I don't know. We've been doing that now for probably eight or ten years, maybe. Um, time gets away. 
but last year he shot 139 inch deer so not a not a giant but a nice bow kill uh-huh um that was a deer that i didn't it was not one of my deer so a bonus deer i like to yep. kill those um take him over there this year and he he shot a deer we called the skinny 10 162 inches that was absolutely living on me huh so I, next year i'm going to spray him with skunk essence or something i guess <laughs> what is the uh you know when you say living on you well how that, often guess, are you getting pictures and you don't that, i'm saying yeah go ahead oh i was gonna say how you're you're not running cellular cameras i don't think right correct right no. so you go over there and pull the cards right so then you look and you're like, oh, this guy's pretty common. And he, I guess was that common from summer through the fall? No. So I'll have some, I'll have some decent velvet deer. It seems like I'm, I'm one of those uh, transition. I pick up a bunch of new deer in September. Oh, gotcha. Year. Um, so when I say living on me, I'm saying, you know, sometime in September till whenever I go over and, and start hunting pretty serious. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got, off and on this this deer's on multiple cameras um you know sometimes every day sometimes maybe gone for a day or two but consistent photos this deer's on my farm um, yeah so awesome yeah um i know people have different definitions of that so i wanted to clarify but when you guys sure. are you're showing up on the farm early november to start really hitting it hard for that week uh before gun missouri firearm season or really peak peak breeding or the lockdown phase as people say so what's the strategy involved yeah so you know once in a while i may if i'm over there for some reason you know in october or hit the right day um I, i'm not at a point in my life that i can haven't been where i can just say oh there's a cold front i'm gonna go hunt for three days in october that work obligations family obligations i'm not that freed up yet but um so i'm we're pretty much setting on a calendar for the most part. I might get a day or two earlier in the season, but yeah, you know, we're going we're going over there early November to hunt the rut. So the nice part is, for one thing, you get over there and stands aren't burned out at all. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't do that even if I did live over there. But I mean, deer have no idea <laughs> that anything's about to happen. You know. Yeah. Um, so I like that part of it. Um, Pull camera cards. I mean, I'm over there maybe a couple times in the fall pulling camera cards and doing a little bit of farm work. If I'm over there in October, I'll still run a chainsaw or do. If I got stuff to do, I'm going to do it. Um, yeah. Brush off, do what I got to do. But I bounce around a lot. Um, I'm not, even if I see something on camera or say, oh my gosh, there's five scrapes and, you know, this deer's been, sure, if I saw steers come through here the last four evenings i'm i'm obviously going to hunt that stand but um i've got stands for every possible wind direction i'm a 100 percent firm believer of obviously never hunting with the wrong wind but also not over hunting a stand yeah um, so if i'm there for five days i'd prefer not to sit in the stand more than twice and it's tough sometimes. I mean, it's only 160 acres. So if I yeah. see a deer in one stand, it's just as likely I'm going to see, I can see that same shooter, you know, two stands over somewhere. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. Um, we keep deer sightings high. We don't, you know, um, like I said earlier, I'll even use a kayak to, to work down the creek to get to some stands. So 
try to be pretty when i go over there to hunt we're very limited on on i guess le- making our presence known yeah we're trying to be well that, that we that's a great point that you bring up that was one of my main questions i was going to ask you given the fact that your entrance is from the northwest corner and there's a cabin on the place in the pretty much the heart of the uh, the property. Dead center, which may or may not be ideal, but that's where it's at. <laughs> that's where it's at, yeah. Yep. It's not. It's like my wife and I talking about building a house on a farm. And, I mean, for for obvious reasons, when you're thinking long-term, what happens if I croak out and she's left with a house and doesn't want to live there? It's kind of hard to section off a house in the middle of the property. Um, if, if my brother or other or kids want to keep the farm and so yours is right in the heart of the place. Um, yep. what's that, what's that like as far as, cause it seems like it would be challenging on certain wind directions like, Oh, it's November 5th. It's a Northwest wind, but now we're coming in from the Northwest. So the winds that are back all the way down the driveway. And then while we're in the cabin and I'm assuming you stay yep. at the cabin. So what's that oh, like? Yeah. So there's some presence levels got to be right staying yeah. at the cabin. I don't I don't know how you get out of that. The deer got to know that hey somebody's here. But yeah, I don't. I feel like I guess because I'm not there every other weekend hunting them. I'm not sure they figure out that when someone's staying there, what's about to happen. It's also the rut. Yes. <laughs> so there's so many things that change, right? The, mm-hmm. Well, rut trumps all of this other stuff to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but. No, there's, uh, if I'm going to hunt, I've got a couple stands that are back up kind of towards the gate, let's say. And yeah. if I'm hunting those, I get in the truck in the morning or afternoon, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I drive out. So I guess if you want to think the deer are really smart, maybe they think, oh, good, he left. Because I leave the property. I'll go drive actually down the road a ways to not even be anywhere parked near my own property and then walk back down the road to, to hunt my own place. So there's times that I'll actually leave the place. So I'm not walking a quarter mile, you know, yeah. in the dark and blowing all over the place. So. <laughs> gotcha. Well, that's a good strategy. And then you yeah. kayak. I mean, yep. I love the idea of kayaking. Kayak. Yep. Yeah. How many times so, have you flipped? None so far. I haven't <laughs> tried to pile a deer on it or anything. Yeah. To haul out of there, but. Yeah. For the, and and not because you haven't probably been successful because then you just go get the truck. (laughs) Yeah. You just go get the truck or the four wheeler and you go load up the deer. Right. Yeah. So at that point, yeah, all bets are off. So you got to go drive back somewhere to load up a deer. What's your strategy involved with November, early November hunting, lots of grass, a couple food plots. You're trying to get a shooter buck in the range. What do you, I mean, I'm assuming you're hunting all kinds of different things, yeah, but really what's right. your go-to strategy? Um, probably in the, even though there's, there's less timber, I'm, I'm in the timber more than I am, of course, edges. Of course, you're looking at it. I mean, I've got so many fields, mm-hmm. but there's almost everything is some edge. So mm-hmm. almost most play most stands i can at least at some level see fields and there's a lot of movement through those fields they're secure they're comfortable yeah because it's taller grass so you will get chasing through there you'll get cruising through there so i guess i don't feel like there's anything that's kind of like eh. well there's once in a while i'll even sit on a 
I'll sit on a legacy food plot November 9th. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, yeah. You know, if I'm. Where where did your buddy kill his at, buck this year? Right on the, um, what would be the very edge of that timber block, that 30 acres of timber we were talking about. Gotcha. On the east edge of it. Okay. And that, that deer was cutting right into my pollinator plot. Huh. They started walking into the pollinator plot, was actually 150 yards from him, and he knew exactly the deer it was because we study pictures. We kind of decide who's on the list, who's on the hit list and who isn't, and agree yeah. to all that. He grabbed the antlers, rattled, and that deer wheeled around and came over and worked a scrape right in front of him, and he shot him. Oh, man. Where, where was your deer? So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see a shooter when we were there, um, but I knew I had some good deer still on camera. So I went back, had to come back and work over here in Missouri for CWD and all of that stuff. And I was dying to get back. So I hustled back about 10 days after he and I were over there and he killed that deer. And I actually was in the exact same stand he was. Um, mm. And that was just by the, the wind direction. That was just kind of by chance. Yep. Um, cold front hit and the wind direction was right. And I said, you know, I had a choice of about three different stands. And I said, ah, I think I'm just going to go sit there. Yeah. First evening in the stand, I was going to be there for two and a half days. And I was in the stand for 32 minutes and and shot a nice deer. I mean, it cost me 500 bucks. I'm putting it on the wall. So it's not a, not a 170 or anything, but it's a really nice buck. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> nice uh, enough it's costing me five hundred bucks. So. Yeah, that's one thing. Inflation <laughs> has kicked in hard on taxidermy bills. Jeez Louise. I, I every year I look and I'm like, Okay, you know, here's a nice buck that I killed. What do I want to shoulder mount it? You're nope, I'm gonna European mount this one too. <laughs> yeah. I haven't shoulder mounted a deer in several years, but I've killed a nice one almost every year and it's just like, geez. I remember when there was two seventy five. Now it's like yeah. four fifty to five hundred bucks. Yeah. So yeah. it's pretty crazy. You know, one one buddy or one of our clients texts me when he had some success this year and he'll come on a podcast in the next few weeks and he said, uh, you need to give a warning with these management plans that you will tag out early and then you'll be wondering what to do in November. <laughs> and then another one texts me and said, you need to let people know that their taxidermy bill is going to go up with this mm-hmm. stuff. So it sounds yeah, like that's it's a nice problem to have. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's like the whole first point. world problems, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you save them time, you save them money. And over time you just transfer that over into taxidermy bills. There you so go. That's right. anyway, but yeah, Kyle, appreciate you coming on. Um, telling about your fall so far and updating us on your property. And I know we've got more stories coming in the future with it. So, um, guys, once again, it's just uh, if you're looking for some help on your place, season's been crummy, myself, Matt, Kyle, Frank, we can all help you improve your property, whether it be 160 acres in Kansas, 10 acres in Kansas, uh, or 2,000 acres in Texas. Uh, we can certainly help you uh, on your property. And you can just get a hold of us at infoatlantalegacy.tv. Kyle, thanks again. You bet. Thank you. 